topic that comes up between Bruce and I all the time is the message American culture sends to boys about what it means to be a man. It's a message that, for all the changes that have taken place in our society, hasn't really changed all that much since we were kids. The emphasis on physical toughness and suppressing your feelings. Having success defined mainly by what you own and your ability to dominate, rather than on your ability to love and care for others. The tendency to treat women as objects to possess, rather than full-fledged partners and fellow citizens. The more we talked, the more obvious it became how these narrow, distorted ideas of masculinity contributed to so many of the damaging trends we continue to see in the country, whether it's the growing inequality in our economy or our complete unwillingness to compromise on anything in our politics. And maybe, Bruce and I realized, we're more attuned to these issues because of the complicated relationships we both have had with our fathers, flawed role models that we've spent much of our lives coming to terms with. You know, my dad was the kind of guy where I can remember one day I, I brought him a video camera. I said, Dad, I want you to tell me the story of your life. It lasted for five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said basically nothing. You know, he simply was, uh, he was an unknowable man. And, and I have to believe with a great penchant for secrecy. And I believe he got this from his father. And the only thing I knew about my grandfather was he disappeared for periods of time and returned home. And nobody knew where no, he went? No, no, you know. Or what he was doing. It, was a, it became a part of his life. And my father carried on that tradition of secrecy about his own life. Really, when I think about it, well, my father disappeared for a day a week. He was always on his own, and my mother was at home with us. And I couldn't tell you where he went or what he did during that particular period of time. And... It was something that was handed down and something I had to work hard not to emulate. You know, the interesting thing for me was not having a, my own father in the house. I have a stepfather for a while. Uh, How who, long did you have the, have the stepfather? Yeah, well, you know, I lived with him probably for four years, uh, from the age of six to ten. And he was a kind man, treated me well, taught me how to box, and uh, and then uh, what happened? What happened to him? Well, he's Indonesian. We moved to Indonesia. We lived there for four years. At the age of ten, my mom, who's worried about my education, decides, okay, I need to send Barry. That was my nickname back then. I need to send him back to Hawaii so he can get an American education. And so I come back to live with my grandparents in the States. And by that time, my mother's marriage to my stepfather is already fraying a little bit. Yeah, they, they separate amicably. And uh, shortly thereafter, he, he actually has a liver ailment and dies very wow. young. Um, 
And I remember sobbing, you know, when he died. Yeah. Uh, even though. Well, if you cried when he died. Yeah, he, he had an impact. One of the things of not having a, a, a father in the house was also not seeing someone who had a craft or a trade or a, a profession that looked like something I should emulate or do. How old is your grandfather? You know, he's, he's relatively young. Uh, I mean, he was probably, because my mom was only 18 when she had me, so he's probably 45 when I'm born, which means that when I'm 10, uh, certainly by the time I'm a teenager, he's probably not much older than I am now. Although he looked a whole lot older and yeah. lived a whole lot older, right? And some of that's generational. And you're having to look towards the 55-year-old white man. Yeah, you know? he, he, he just doesn't, there, there's no, there was nothing in him, and I loved him deeply, and I still see parts of him in me, but there was nothing in him where I said, oh, that's what I should be. And he was somebody who, at the end of the day, wasn't satisfied with his life. Mm -hmm. because he had big dreams that were never really fulfilled. You know, he was the, he was the kind of guy who would, um, when I was 10, you know, on the weekends, he'd sit down and he, he would have drawn out, like, the kind of house he would love to build. Yeah. And, and he'd make, you know, sort of architectural drawings that he had looked up in some magazine how to do it mm -hmm. with great detail, but the house never got built. Yeah, And my grandmother was a practical one who, you know, she had worked her way up from being a clerk to becoming a, a vice president of the local bank and ended up being our primary breadwinner in the family, which was, for that generation, a source like my, of great resentment. Yeah, it was like my mom. But it was unspoken. But I, but I say all this just because... To get back to what we were talking about earlier, there wasn't really any obvious role models out there for me to follow. And the fact that I was in Hawaii where there were almost no African-American men, uh, you know, meant that you really had to kind of piece this thing together on your own. So now, as, as a teenager, I'm trying to figure out, all right, what does this mean uh, to be a man? It means you got to be an athlete, right? And so basketball becomes my obsession. It means you got to chase girls, successfully or not. I'm not doing <laughs> so good so far. Go ahead, keep going. <laughs> right? You got you got to do that. Um, how much beer you could consume? Oh man! How you know high could you get? Yeah. How were you in a scrap? Yeah. Right? And that was sort of what the culture told you was how you became manly, right? And, and, and if you didn't have a father in the house, then a lot of it you're picking up just from popular culture, right? So you're watching James Bond movies, or you're watching, in my case, you're watching Shaft and... Superfly, and especially athletes. That becomes the model of cool and strength. Yeah. All of those things, I think you're right. I mean, if I could have done 
any of those things you listed, I would never have become a rock star. <laughs> never. You know, people in my line of work are the people that couldn't do any of those things. So they had to find an alternate route to getting girls to do those things. <laughs> to get the girls to get loaded, to, you know, to dominate. I mean, you know, and really, you know, I had a, I had a, a the arc of my work life was a little funny because I was at my most popular, I feel, when I had an image that was least like myself, you know. So you think you can take us, huh? I had a very alpha male image. right in the middle of the Reagan era 80s. The boss. Right, and that view of the United States as something powerful and domineering was resurgent. So, in, it's funny how I look and see in my own way, I, I pursued that archetype myself. I mean, what's more domineering than coming out in front of a stadium of 50,000 people? It's, it's glad- With some drums it's and some smoke. That's what, it's gladiatorial, <laughs> all right? <laughs> it's a gladiatorial experience yeah. on some level. Yeah. So I can't deny the aspect of that that played upon me and that I took satisfaction in. The interesting thing is the degree to which that hasn't changed that much. No. Um, you read articles. I talk to my daughter's friends about boys growing up. And so much of popular culture tells them that the only clear defining thing or about being a man being masculine is you excel in sports and and sexual conquest and and that and, and violence and violence right those are the three things and 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 violence if it's healthy at least is subsumed into sports mm -hmm. later you add to that definition making money right how much money can you make and there were some qualities of the traditional American male that are absolutely worthy of praise and worthy of, of emulating. Of that sense of responsibility, meaning you're willing to do hard things and, and make some sacrifices for your family or for future generations. Right? The greatest generation showed that again and again. And that handling your business, that sense of responsibility of being an adult. Mm -hmm. right? um, but there is a, there's a bunch of stuff in there that we did not reckon with. And, and that now you are seeing with Me Too and part of what we we're dealing with in terms of uh, you know, women... Uh, still seeking equal pay, and part of what we're still dealing with uh, in terms of 
domestic abuse and violence. Um, there was never a full reckoning no. of what our dads, who our dads were, what they had in them. Yeah. How we have to understand that and talk about that, what lessons we should learn from it. All that kind of got buried. Yeah, but we sort of ended up being just 60s versions, versions. of our dads. <laughs> right? And carrying all the same. Yeah, car carrying all the same baggage. And, all the same, uh, all, all the same anger, all the same pent-up frustrations. Yeah. All the same messages. And there was one other thing that I know you can relate to that was part of it. Was you don't show weakness, you don't That's show right. emotion. You don't talk too much about how you're feeling. Right. You know, I, I'm handling my business. Now, I had that tempered by having a father who was pretty seriously mentally ill. And so in high school, I began to become very aware of his weaknesses, even though his outward presentation, he was a kind of a bulky guy, he was kind of bullish and and totally confirmed, you know, to that archetype. Right. All right. But things went pretty wrong in the last years of high school and in the last years that I lived with him at our house. And uh my father was a funny guy. There was something in in his illness or in who he was that involved a tremendous denying of, of, of his family ties. And this created enormous problems for me as I got older because I couldn't make a family connection. I always remember him complaining that if he hadn't had a family, he would have been able to take a certain job and gone on the road, but it, it was a missed opportunity and he sat there over that six-pack of beer night after night after night after night, and that was his answer to it all, you know. So we felt guilt, you know, and that was my entire picture of, of masculinity until I was way into my 30s where I began to sort it out myself because I couldn't establish and hold a relationship I was embarrassed simply having a, a, a woman at my side. I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't find a life with the information that he'd left me. And I was trying to over and over again. All the early years that I was with Patty, if we were in public, I, I had a, I was very, very anxious, and I could never sort sort that through. And I realized, well, yeah, these were the signals I got when I was very young that a family doesn't strengthen you; it weakens you. It takes away your opportunity. It takes away your manhood. It, it, it neuters you. It neuters you, exactly. Constrains you. And this is 
this is what I carried with me for a long, long time. And I lived in fear of that neutering. And so that meant you live without, without the, the love, without the companionship, without the home. And you have your little bag of clothes and you get on that road and you just go from one place to the next. And you're free. You think you are. That's the notion. Right, you think you are. And I thought I was. Mm -hmm. Uh, for a long time, I thought I was, until I tried to have something <laughs> be beyond what was allowed, you know, beyond what I was allowing myself. And you don't notice that when you're in your 20s, around 30, something didn't feel quite right. Did you have to deal with that? You know, so the, there's some stuff that's in common, and, and then there's there's stuff that tracks a little differently. So my father leaves when I'm two. Yeah. And I don't meet him until I'm 10 years old when he comes to visit for a month in Hawaii. He what was probably- brought him to visit you eight years after he left? And then for- so, so the story is my father grows up in a small village in the west, northwestern corner of Kenya. And my father goes from herding goats to getting on a jet plane and flying to Hawaii and traveling to Harvard, and suddenly right. he's an economist. Unbelievable. And, and in that gap, in, in that leap, from a, a really rural agricultural society to suddenly him trying to pretend that he's sophisticated man about town. Uh, you know, I think something was lost there. Something slipped. And so, although he was extraordinarily confident and charismatic, and by all accounts, could sort of run circles around people intellectually. Right. Emotionally, he was scarred and damaged in all kinds of ways that I, you know, I, I can only retrace from the stories that I heard later because I didn't really know him. Anyway, when he's a student in Hawaii, he meets my mother. I am conceived. I think the marriage comes after the conception. Okay. But then he gets a scholarship to go to Harvard and he decides, well, that's where I need to go. He's willing to have my mother and me go with him, but I think there are cost issues involved and they separate, but they stay in touch. He goes back to Kenya, gets a government job, and he has another uh, marriage and another set of kids. When he comes back to visit you, he has another family. He's got another family. You know, I think he and his wife are in a bad spot. I see. I think what he's what he's probably coming back for is to see my mother, who still sees him when he was at 
that point in his life where everything was possibility. And I think he was probably trying to court my mother to come back and have her grab me and all of us move back to Kenya. And my mother, who still loved him, was wise enough to realize that's probably a bad idea. But I did see him then for a month. And I don't know what to make of him. Because mm-hmm. he's very foreign, right? He's got a British accent, and he's got this booming voice, and he takes up a lot of space. And everybody kind of defers to him because he was just a big personality. Yeah. And... um He's trying to sort of tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, he's, ah, Anna, I, but, so he could call my mother. Her name was Anne. Anna, I think that boy, he, he, he's watching too much t- television. He should be doing his studies. And, you know, so I wasn't that happy that he had showed up. All right. And I was kind of eager for him to go. Ah. Uh because I, I had no way to connect to the guy. You know, the guy's, you know, he's a, he's a stranger who's suddenly in our house. So he leaves, I, I, don't, I, I never see him again. We, we, we write. When I'm in college, I decide, if I'm going to kind of understand myself better, I need to know him better. So I write to him, I say, listen, I'm going to come to Kenya. I'd, you know, I'd like to spend some time with you. He says, ah, yes. I, I think this is a very wise decision. You'll come here. And, uh, and then I get a phone call probably about six months before I was planning to go, or a year before I planned to go, and uh, uh, he's been killed by a car accident. But two two two. Things that I I discovered later, or or understood later. The the first was just how much influence that one month that he was there had on me. Amazing. In ways that I didn't realize. Right? So he actually gave me my first basketball. So so I'm suddenly obsessed with basketball, but... How'd that happen, right? Um, yeah. I remember that he, the one thing we did together, he decided to take me to a Dave Brubeck concert. Now, this is an example of why I didn't have much use for the guy, because, you know, you're a 10-year-old American kid. <laughs> Some guys wants to take you to a jazz take concert. Take five, you're not quite Take ready, five, you, you know? <laughs> So I'm sitting there, and I, I'm kind of don't know what I'm doing there. It's not till later that I look back and I say, huh, I become one of the few kids in, in my school who becomes interested in jazz. And when I got older, my mother would look at how I crossed my legs or gestures right. and she'd Say it's kind of spooky, but but the second the, the the second thing that I learned was in watching his his other male children, 
who I got to know later when I traveled to Kenya and I met some of them, I realized that in some ways it was probably good that I had not lived in his home. Because much in the same way that your dad was struggling with a bunch of stuff, he was struggling with a bunch of stuff and it created chaos and destruction and anger and hurt and and long-standing wounds in them that I just did not have to deal with. Well, I think what's fascinating is the impact he had on you in one month. That's in one yeah. month. The thing that happens is when we can't get the love we want from the parent we want it from, how do you how do you create how do you get the intimacy you need i can't i can't get to him and i can't have him i'll be him that's what i'll do i'll be him i'm way into my 30s before i even have any idea that that's that's my, my method of operations. I'm on stage. I'm in workman's clothes. I've never worked a job in my life. <laughs> Played a freaking guitar my whole life. <laughs> I got 20 or 30 extra pounds on me from hitting the gym. My dad was a beefy, a beefy guy. Where'd that come from? You know. While I spent hours lifting up and putting down heavy things with no particular, for no particular reason whatsoever. <laughs> right? My entire body of work, everything I've cared about, everything I've written about, draws from his life story. Not, not necessarily my own, secondarily. Primarily from his. You know, I found I went down a lot of roads that did not lead me to where I wanted to be. I don't think I got to where I wanted to be uh, as a man until Patty was in my life and schooled me on some things I needed some serious schooling on, you know. <laughs> Here was where I was lucky. 32, I go into hardcore analysis. I don't have my children till I'm 40. So I'm eight years into looking into a lot of these things because what I found out about that archetype was it was fucking destructive in my life, <laughs> you know? It drove away people I cared about. It kept me from knowing my true self. And I realized, where, well, if you want, you want to follow this road, go ahead, but you're going to end up, you're going to end up on your own, my friend, you know? And if you want to invite some people into your life, you better learn how to do that. 
And there's only one way you do that. You've got to open the doors. And that archetype doesn't leave a lot of room for those doors to be open because that archetype is a closed man. Your inner self is forever secretive and unknown. You know, uh, stoic, uh, silent, uh, not revealing your feelings. Well, you got to get rid of all of that stuff if you want something. If you want something, if you want a partnership, if you want a full family who you are going to allow and give the kind of sustenance and nurture and room to grow and be themselves and find their own full lives, you better be ready to let a lot of that go, my friend. Let me add to the pain of that with this. <laughs> Last night I dreamed that I was a child Out where the pines grow Wild and tall I was trying to make it home through the forest before the darkness, darkness falls. There was a point where I started to realize, you know, that was your cross to bear. You know, my dad, you know, never really spoke to me through to the day he died, you know. He truly didn't know how. He truly did not, he didn't have, he just didn't have the skills at all, it seemed. And you know, once I understood how ill he was, it, it, it you know, it, it makes up for a lot of it. But it doesn't matter so much to a six-year-old boy or an eight-year-old boy or a nine-year-old boy what you're not going to have an understanding of what your father is suffering where sins lie on a tone You end up wrestling with ghosts. Um, I guess that's we all. That's what we all do. And ghosts are tricky because if 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 you are measuring yourself against someone who's not there, then you know. In some cases, I think people uh, whose fathers aren't there. And their mothers are feeling really bitter about their fathers not being there. Uh, what they absorb is just how terrible that guy mm -hmm. was, and you don't want to be like that guy. Right. In my mother's case, she took a different tack, which was she only presented his best qualities, and That's not and not his worst. And 
in some ways that was beneficial because I never felt as if I had some flawed inheritance, some mm -hmm. kind of something in me that would lead me to become an alcoholic or an abusive husband or right. you know, any of that. Instead, what happened was I, I kept on thinking, man, I've got to live up to this, right? Yeah. And so as I got older, I think part of what happens to me, you know, Michelle always wonders sometimes, why is it that you just feel so compelled to just do all this hard stuff? I mean, why, why don't you, what's this hole in you that just makes you just feel so driven? Yeah. And I think part of it was kind of early on feeling as if, man, I, I got to live up to this. I've got to prove this. Maybe the reason he leaves is because he didn't think it was worth staying for me and I will show him that, you know, yeah. Yeah. he made a mistake not hanging around because I was, I was worth investing in. You're always trying to prove your worth. Yeah. A lifetime journey of trying to prove your worth to somebody, somebody who's, not, who's there. not even there anymore. And, you know? and, and who may not have even been thinking about you, be, not because anything to do with you, but because he's confused yeah. and he's lost and he's damaged in various ways, right? But like you say, we end up wrestling with ghosts. The trick is you have to turn your ghosts into ancestors. <laughs> ghosts haunt you, ancestors walk alongside of you and provide you with comfort and a vision of a life that's going to be your own. My father walks alongside of me as my ancestor now. It took a long time for that to happen. Renegades Born in the USA is a Spotify original, presented and produced by Higher Ground Audio in collaboration with Dustlight Productions. From Higher Ground Audio, Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Joe Paulson are executive producers. Carolyn Lipka and Adam Sachs are consulting producers. Janae Marable is our editorial assistant. From Dustlight Productions, Misha Youssef and Arwin Nix are executive producers. Elizabeth Nakano, Mary Knopf, and Tamika Adams are producers. Mary Knopf is also editor. Andrew Epen is our composer and mix engineer. Rainier Harris is our apprentice. Transcriptions by David Rodriguez. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, the Dustlight Development and Operations Coordinator. 
Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, and Courtney Holt are executive producers for Spotify. Gimlet and Lydia Polgreen are consulting producers. Music supervision by Search Party Music. From the great state of New Jersey, special thanks to John Landau, Tom Zimney, Rob LeBret, Rob DeMartin, and Barbara Carr. We also want to thank Adrian Gerard, Marilyn Laverty, Tracy Nurse, Greg Lynn, and Betsy Whitney. And a special thanks to Patty Scalfa for her encouragement and inspiration. And to Evan, Jess, and Sam Springsteen. From the District of Columbia, thanks to Christina Shockey, Mackenzie Smith, Katie Hill, Eric Schultz, Caroline Adler-Morales, Maron Heli-Mescal, Alex Platkin, Kristen Bartoloni, and Cody Keenan. And a special thanks to Michelle, Malia, and Sasha Obama. This is Renegades, born in the USA.